what we're trying to do is create something that appeals to the breadth of communities we serve. I think that's also a benefit to building more affordable housing, right? And so mm-hmm. figuring out ways of financing that are equity-based, that share risk, that are more transparent. I think these are, are universals, not just niche Muslim values. We are now looking at the community investment cooperative model. And that's a model where a building is community owned and there's a return on equity. And return on equity is Sharia compliant. There's a shared risk, shared reward. I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City, a podcast where we talk to people who are working to make cities better. Our hope is that after each episode, you'll start to see your own city from a slightly different angle. This is the fourth episode of the Halal Housing Lab podcast series, exploring how we might finance an affordable housing project for multi-generational Muslim families in Edmonton, Alberta, while being respectful of the financial values of Islamic culture. The Halal Housing Lab is a collaborative project between our partners at Islamic Family, or IFSA, Another Way, SAS Architecture, Ask for a Better World, and our team at Intelligent Futures. It's all funded by the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Over the course of the past several months, we've begun working to find new and innovative housing solutions that not only accommodate the needs of multi-generational Muslim families, but can improve the housing market for everyone in Canada. Conventional financing models keeps many Muslims, as well as service organizations like Islamic Family, out of the affordable housing market. A central component to the Halal Housing Lab has been to identify how different models of affordable housing financing can be leveraged to support diverse worldviews while working within larger Canadian housing systems. Financing is a critical component to the success of any housing development, and when the idea of money is inherent to cultural values that differ from the North American norm, it compounds the difficulty of addressing the growing shortage of affordable housing in Canadian cities. So while challenging, learning from Islamic values towards money through the concept of halal financing has the potential to create more equitable and transparent financial systems for all. To begin our discussion of halal financing, we're going to speak with our lab partner, Anna Bubel, of Another Way. Anna is an expert in community-led economic development processes, where communities identify and initiate their own solutions to economic, social, and environmental issues to build healthy, economically viable communities. Anna Bubel, I'm the principal of Another Way, which is a consulting firm that specializes in community economic development. Through the the lab process that we've been undertaking, there have been no shortage of avenues and various types of explorations we've been doing. Um, But maybe for the listeners, if you could just kind of set the stage on the financing part. So could you maybe just describe some of the key steps to planning and financing an affordable housing project? Well, where we are now at the beginning is the pre-development stage. And so what you're trying to do during that pre-development stage is to as accurately and as much detail as possible anticipate what it's going to cost to actually build the project. And the devil really is in the details there. What you don't want to do is be blindsided later and find out, oh, you know, someone gave me or offered me a a contaminated piece of land for a dollar and then it'll be $10 million to remediate. Or, for example, um, this lovely parcel of land is top of bank and sits on top of a coal mine. Now, these are extreme examples, Mm -hmm. but you do actually have to really pay attention. Uh, Site servicing would also be an example. It can it can really make the the difference of hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, if you have to do an entire sewer trunk upgrade. 
So what we're trying to do at this stage in the game, which is difficult if you don't have a specific parcel tied up, is to try to very clearly and methodically go through all of the related expenses associated with the parcel of land. For example, do you have to have it rezoned or are you good to go? So all of those types of things go into trying to come up with an initial capital budget. And then we can look at, okay, given that, what are our assumptions around how much equity we have, how much grant funding we can get, and how much debt this thing can actually incur? That then drives the operating performer where we look at, okay, what does it take to keep the wheels on the bus from a building perspective? And what does that mean in terms of average rental rates for the tenants? So those two things are very much intertwined. Part of that from a financing point of view then is what's called the interim financing. So that's during construction. We have to make sure that the cost of boring while we're actually building the thing is in the performa. And then the final was called takeout financing, which is the ultimate mortgage that's reflected in the operating cost of the building. Terrific. One of the best summaries of that whole process that I've heard. Thank you. So just uh, quickly, if you could, you mentioned a pro forma. So for those that uh, are listening that haven't heard of that before, could you describe what that is? It's just a budget. There's two types. There's a capital budget, which is for the actual construction of the building, and an operating budget, which is a multi-year budget looking at how the building will fare, just again, from an operations point of view. Okay, so one of the the key focus areas of the lab is how do we uh, support multi-generational families. Uh, So, you know, there's a whole bunch of considerations and and challenges related to that. Could you maybe speak to, from the the, the development and financing side, um, what challenges or barriers exist to developing these kinds of units and developments that support intergenerational families that we typically don't see in in our communities today? Well, what we know from a construction point of view is that while The the most expensive part of a building are the bathrooms and the kitchens. So every time you have a single unit that has one of those, it's relatively expensive. But when you're starting to try to build for units that have, let's say, seven people in them, what we're finding is that the, the amount of glazing that's required becomes significant because each bedroom has to have a window that's you can leave. So egress becomes an issue. Mm -hmm. In the world of architecture and construction, glazing refers to the installation of glass in windows, doors, or any other openings. If you're into an apartment, uh, that's another issue too around glazing and how you have to deal with that. So from a capital perspective, it's not so expensive to build more bedrooms, but the, the requirements around bedrooms become significant. Mostly from an operating perspective, though, it becomes interesting. If you can get two and a half bachelors into the same square footage that you can get a large family unit, you can get a lot more money for three bachelors than you can for one large family mm-hmm. unit. So that actually hurts the operating performa from that perspective. Um, so there are for sure challenges to try, and quite apart from design, uh, to make the math work on the operating side when you're trying to uh, provide housing for large numbered families. Mm-hmm. And have there been any key opportunities or beacons of hope that you've you've seen in terms of the the financing side? It just or does it just require a a shift in thinking and the and the economic models just have to look different for those kinds of units? 
Well, I think it depends, and we've yet to determine this, what the families can afford to pay. Mm-hmm. So what, what's clear is that um, if we're talking about refugee families that are given a, a housing allowance of something like $750 a month for a very large family, uh, then that kind of unit cannot have any kind of debt. That has to be 100% mortgage-free and hope that you can even cover your operating costs on that $750 a month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really, it's as, we, as we've had the conversation with the different lab partners, uh, you know, to consider the lived experience of folks and the design implications and the development implications and the social and cultural implications, it's, it's um, such a fascinating and complex series of challenges that uh but worth if if we're thinking about you know making sure that we're building homes for folks that are you know to allow them to thrive um it's 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 definitely a worthwhile exploration to explore the intersection of culture financing and affordable housing next we're going to speak to our halal housing lab project lead omar who's been working on affordable housing design and financing for over 15 years my name is Amir Koub. I get to serve the team at Islamic Family. How might community come to the table to provide rent supplements? You know, the, the Muslim community is one example where there is obligatory giving. And oftentimes that obligatory giving goes to things like food hampers, right? Food hampers are a loose band-aid, right? It'd be really wonderful if we can shift some of those dollars that are going towards food security to housing security, right? If we can mm-hmm. provide people who are in need with housing stability, we address a whole host of other problems and we set people up for far greater success. And uh, so mm-hmm. I think there's a huge opportunity there to actually enlist more people in, in the solution and building. Obligatory giving in the Muslim community is called zakat. Zakat is one of many forms of giving within Islamic culture, but due to its obligatory nature, it represents a significant untapped potential for the community to support affordable housing through philanthropic capital. Zakat comes from the Arabic word zakat, which means to grow. And in the Quran, it talks about how wealth is a trust from God. So it's not something we actually own, our wealth. It comes from God. It's it's something that he owns. And therefore, he says, some of what I give you, is it belongs to the poor. So every year we give this small amount as a way of purifying. And the word zakat then comes from the word grow because it basically grows the blessings that you have by returning to God what he has loaned you in the service of those who need it most. Dr. Catherine Bullock is a lecturer at the University of Toronto and Mississauga. In addition to being a writer, publisher, mother, and former chair of one of Canada's largest Muslim organizations, the Islamic Society of North America. Her teaching focus is on political Islam from a global perspective, and her research focuses on Muslims in Canada, their history, lived experience, media representations, and Muslim perspectives on basic income. Zakat, in very simple terms, is an annual payment if you're above a certain income level of 2.5% on your income and assets after you take away what you need for basic living expenses. Charity is not necessarily a good way to translate the word zakat because charity in the Western philosophy tradition is usually defined as some amount that you voluntarily give to someone else. But in this conception, it's not yours to give. 
It's the right of the poor on you. It's basically their right. It's someone else's right on you. So it's uh, it's fulfilling an obligation. It's not necessarily a charity. The act of purification of wealth is something that we don't always think about when we're writing that check. How is this actually purifying my wealth? It makes you rethink what wealth is. It rethinks your relationship to God. It makes you sort of in awe and wonder that how come I was given enough to be able to write a check for zakat, alhamdulillah. Like what did, what did I deserve to have such blessings? And then you learn the other side about how zakat is meant to be a dignified way of helping poor people out of poverty. It's not meant to be anything like what we hear, the criticisms of the welfare system as the welfare trap. Uh, and some of the jurists isn't even advised when you're giving, don't even tell them this is zakat as a way to help the recipient feel dignity. So the philosophical conversation around zakat is about how it creates those bonds of solidarity in the community. And one of the best stories that I heard from my interviews, he's, he says, pretend we're setting out on an exhibition and there's a hundred of us. And somebody lags behind and you turn around and you say, here, I'll carry your belongings or here, here's my water bottle so that you can basically, you know, bring them with you as part of the exp expedition. And to me, that was so profound, like that sense of looking after each other. As a social services or association providing a holistic approach to community well-being, Islamic Family is a steward in the distribution of zakat to people in need. Through responsible, transparent and efficient processes, Omar and his team oversees the giving of wealth to those in need in the community as one of the five pillars of Islam incumbent upon people with means. In the service of those in need within the Muslim community, there are significant considerations to ensure zakat is consistent with religious requirements, expectations, and the needs of the community and the Canada Revenue Agency. I remember a number of years back when I was uh, first in a leadership position in the organization, talking with a, a dear friend who's a uh, a student sacred knowledge about zakat and um you know that that um significantly reframed my view of zakat in the way that dr kathy mentioned you know it's not our money it doesn't belong to organizations either right so oftentimes i think there's this assumption in in organizations that serve the poor that when zakat comes into their door that they should use it as they need right and uh you know, I think that, that that can be very problematic. I think a better way for us to understand it is that, oh, you know, we're we're a custodian that's there to help uh, be an intermediary to get money from one party to another. The people who are coming to us who are the owners, the real owners of Zakat, you know, what are we doing to give them uh, not only dignity but choice in what we do? And that can be very complex in the Canadian system where we're trying to work with Canadian revenue agency guidelines and trying to maximize the impact. You know, we don't want people coming to us and giving them zakat when, you know, they might have better options, right? Maybe what they really need is affordable housing. And if we can connect them with affordable housing, then we can use the zakat we have to help someone who might not have other options, right? Because there's a you know, there's still a scarcity that we have to deal with and an optimization question. So I think the the big, big piece, though, is just reframing Zakat in our mind as belonging to someone else. 
As we reframe the concept of wealth to reflect a broader global understanding and diversity of perspectives, it also begins to bring into question the norms and cultures of our North American financing mechanisms for housing. As of 2021, 60% of Canadian homeowners have a mortgage. As many are familiar with, a mortgage is a type of loan used to purchase or maintain a home, land, or other types of real estate with the promise to pay someone interest in exchange for borrowing that money. One of the biggest learnings for me personally through this lab has been the idea of halal financing or Sharia-compliant financing, which fundamentally challenges the idea of a mortgage. Omar, could you describe what halal financing looks like for housing? Uh, so one of the uh, things that are, is foundational for Muslims is a belief in economic justice. Uh, when we think about economic justice, it has many, many different elements. But part of that is actually how we deal with money and what we think the purpose of money is. Mm. Um, so as Muslims, we believe that money is a trust that we have a duty to use in a responsible way. Um, part of what we also believe about money is that um, money shouldn't have a return on itself, that there has to be a degree of shared risk when we do things. So a conventional loan from a bank is not acceptable to Muslims um, because there isn't that element of shared risk, right? Mm -hmm. The bank always wins. And as people who believe in economic justice, we want a system that's more equitable and more just. The, the challenge of that is it makes it very hard to work in a system where the default to such an extent is loan-based financing or debt-based financing. Now, uh, something that many people hear when they think Islamic financing is they think, oh, this is not doable. How can you even finance something without a loan? Well, you know, we, we do have an example of that. That's just called equity, right? You invest in a company, you have a share in the upside, a share in the downside. Mm -hmm. um, that's a very easy, well-understood way of doing it. That works for, for Muslims as well. Now, uh, I should also put the caveat that there are more than a billion Muslims in the world. There's a range of opinions on how to navigate Islamic financing. Some people will navigate in the conventional financing world for a variety of reasons. What we're trying to do is create something that appeals to the breadth of communities we serve, but something that's also a benefit to building more affordable housing, right? And so mm -hmm. figuring out ways of financing that are equity-based, that share risk, that are more transparent. I think these are, are universals, not just um, niche Muslim values. Mm -hmm. Can you maybe speak to some of the what we've learned so far uh, through the lab explorations in terms of what's what exists here in Canada, elsewhere in the world, and what doesn't? Within Canada, there is a very nascent uh, Sharia-compliant finance. With that, you know, the, the Sharia-compliant financing that works, some of it is like, okay, we relabel things and that'll work for a segment of the population. Um, but some of it is still actually really questionable, right? And, you know, don't want to say anything negative about what exists. But if we're trying to design things that are innovative, then we want to kind of go back to the root of the root and say, are we true to principles of shared risk of equity? And are we doing it in a way that supports the development of more affordable housing? Which fundamentally isn't something we do for economic gain. It's something we do for human impact. 
Mm-hmm. And so what we found is, one, there aren't a lot of products on the market that we can use. Of the products that do exist, uh, very few are approved by CMHC. And the the ones that kind of maybe might potentially fit that have a premium that doesn't allow for it to be aligned with affordable housing. So if you have to pay for a more expensive product, you know, that product isn't something that like appeals to the the breadth of the community, then essentially you just, you're paying more to build what is an already subsidized product. Right. Right. Yeah. Was, that's, that's been an interesting conversation we've had been had in the lab is just that kind of almost bespoke or tailored or niche kind of product being more expensive, which runs right up against the challenge of trying to make a project as affordable as possible to have as much impact as possible. And one of the many head scratchers so far of, <laughs> of the, the discovery and the journey so far. Can you maybe talk about some of the financial challenges, uh, say that some of your clients have experienced sort of at the household level of acquiring housing? For many Muslims, they are stuck in affordable housing because they can't find the um, finance products to let them purchase housing, right? Because they won't engage in interest-based transactions because they want a fair product. They are stuck in the housing they're in, right? They're Mm -hmm. stuck as renters. The recent stat from uh, StatsCan shows that 50% of Muslims are in the rental market, which is far higher than the general population. Mm -hmm. I think that shows us that there is a glass ceiling to finance for people who care about their values. I think also what that should say is that there's a there's a huge opportunity in an untapped market to create a product that helps them get housing in a way that aligns with their values and that we haven't seen. You know, in the U.S., uh, U.K., and other markets, the difference between um, a values aligned finance product and a conventional product is three basis points, like a fraction of a percent. In Mm. Canada, the difference can be 3%. So more than a hundred times more um, to get the same product. And so for, you know, a lot of Muslim families, a lot of other groups that want a fair economic system, they can't buy housing because they don't have products that facilitate that. I think also you know, the same problem, you know, there isn't a lot of housing that's designed for larger and extended families. Um, The affordable housing we do develop doesn't tend to align with the the ways that people want to habitate their homes, right? They don't design around living rooms or hospitality or beauty. Mm -hmm. You know, so those are all big challenges. While there are obviously many challenges to overhauling the entire Canadian housing system to be more reflective of diverse worldviews, it's a challenge worth exploring and central to the Halal Housing Lab. Figuring out Halal financing for affordable housing has the potential to significantly impact the availability of culturally appropriate housing for many Canadians. Anna, could you provide any key insights you've had as we've gone along this journey to date in creating an affordable housing project that aligns with Halal financing values? Well, I think the one hopeful bit of this, I'm not even sure that that will work, but having eliminated conventional financing, not finding any Sharia compliant financing, 
Uh, we are now looking at the community investment cooperative model. And that's a model where a building is community owned and there's a return on equity. And return on equity is Sharia compliant. There's a shared risk, shared reward kind of model. Mm-hmm. But whether or not you can have any kind of a return, frankly, combined with new construction and escalating construction costs and people of very, very low income and ability to pay. I mean, is there a Venn diagram where all those three overlap? That has yet to be determined. Mm-hmm. And maybe, uh, could you maybe share some of your experiences with that model uh, in other contexts, just to give a, an illustration of what that could look like? Sure. So there are all kinds of examples of community investment co-ops. So in Edmonton, for example, uh, an inner city community where I live in Macaulay, uh, we raised $1.1 million to buy a very problematic strip mall. And that amount of raise was enough to get a mortgage. And now we as the community are the proud owners of this strip mall. Uh, There's the Edmonton uh, Solar Cooperative which provides uh, investment in new solar startups and installations. It's called SPICE. Calgary YYC has also an investment cooperative as well, where they invest in local and small businesses. So there's lots and lots of models of how this is used. Um, I'm trying to trace right now whether or not there's an example of this for affordable housing across the country. Hmm. So I put in a call and I'm dying to know if anyone else has tried to use this model for affordable housing. Okay, so that's a good flag. If any listeners out there uh, have have an idea, please let us know because <laughs> that that would be most helpful for your uh, community owned strip mall. Can you maybe talk about how that's gone and and what the ownership decision making looks like? Because I think that's an interesting model that might be new to a lot of folks. So it, it is a cooperative, and uh, it's a for profit cooperative. Much seem oxymoron, but anyway, it is. So one member, one vote, doesn't matter if you invested $10,000 or $100,000, you have one vote. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's what makes it a cooperative. We were able to really tap into people's RRSPs and TFSAs. An RRSP is a registered retirement savings plan, and a TFSA is a tax-free savings account. Both are a way for Canadian residents to set money aside throughout their lifetime, registered through the Canadian federal government. Because we're not a rich community, people didn't have a ton in cash and savings, but we're able to invest that kind of money. Mm-hmm. And uh, so now we have oh, approximately 50 members and we have a board of directors and every bay is occupied with the exception of one. Yeah, amazing. Okay, that's great. Okay, so one last question I didn't prep before that uh, we ask everybody. Can you tell me a city you love and why you love it? I love New York. New York's a really, really great city. It's actually, it's incredible. It's, you're there and you think, yes, this is like a world-class city. This is an amazing, amazing place. It's unique. It's powerful. It's compelling. I love it. People need a place to call home more than ever. A place to provide shelter from economic and social stress. A place to live, to work, to play, educate children, and care for family members. Understanding the complexities of financing an affordable housing project that aligns with Islamic values has presented many opportunities for how the Canadian affordable housing model can be more transparent, equitable, and just to meet the growing diversity of Canadian housing needs. Stay tuned for the next installment of the Halal Housing Series, where we're going to explore the lived experience of Muslim Canadians in various housing situations, understanding economic and family structure circumstances, and exploring future expectations and hopes for housing. 
360 Degree City is created by our team at Intelligent Futures. To learn more about the work we do, go to intelligentfutures.ca. I'm John Lewis. Thanks for stopping by.